Hello and welcome to Dragons and Lions, the podcast about what happens on, around, and behind the tabletop. Today, I'm joined by Greg. Hey there. And our special guest, Anna Maria Jackson Phelps. Hi. And we will be talking about uh, some of the things that uh, Anna Maria does in terms of board game media, uh, a lot of things with uh, women in board games and that that type of work, um, as well as like I know that uh, you do as well Kickstarter promos and help and that kind of stuff. So a lot of really cool things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we'll we'll talk about that. But first, let's go ahead and jump in and talk about what we've been playing recently. So uh, Anna Maria, have you been playing anything fun recently? Oh gosh, yes. Um, see, I think number one, I got a escape room puzzle type game called Wish You Were Ooh. Here. Okay. It's an envelope. It's got five postcards in it. That's mm-hmm. it. That's there's no instructions. There's okay. no nothing. You just start with a very basic message on one of the postcards addressed to you. And then from there, you are completely and entirely on your own. And it was amazing. I really like this type of game anyway. It's probably right now like my favorite mechanic. If you can call it a puzzle. Yeah, I would, I would call that a mechanic for sure. Um, it's It's got a lot of really devious ciphers. It's got fun wordplay. A lot of different puzzles. And since there is no introduction, you yeah. don't feel like you're kind of led. You know, it's, it's certainly not linear. You can stop. You can work on something else. You can go back mm-hmm. and forth. But... Uh, in particular, there were two things that I really, really liked about it, besides just thinking that it was a good puzzle game in general. Uh, you don't have to destroy it to play the game. So, nice. yeah, I know. Isn't that great? I mean, both yeah. environmentally and just, you know, economically, you shove it back in the envelope, you hand it to a friend and say, have fun with this. Right. Exactly. So, exactly. Pass it on. Yeah, absolutely. That was fantastic. Um, and I thought they just did a good job of having you know here's here's a little bit of immersion but you start to create that yourself uh as the game gets played through and they do have a website that has some hints on it so you're not stuck forever but the puzzles are set up such that you can play one to five people which is nice because it's got solo possibility as well as actually have five people working on different things at the same time and not fighting over materials Yeah, yeah yeah and i've heard from people who are playing it in little fits and spurts. Like they have 15 minutes here. So they'll just grab a postcard and do one puzzle, like try and work through one little piece and then they can put it away and come back to it later. So it doesn't wind up being this, okay, we have to sit down for three hours to work on it. Yeah. You know, it can be this, this, you know, little, I just need some immersion. I need a break. I need a brain burner right now. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. then you can put it away. And so I think, I think they did a really nice job on it. And, um, the part two is currently on Kickstarter, and I'm I'm on fire for that one. I cannot wait <laughs> to get my hands on it. <laughs> that sounds really really interesting. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever heard of it, but like now I'm I'm like I think first of all I think uh, Leslie will love it because yeah. she loves puzzly things, and then uh, in general, it just sounds like an amazingly fun like experience because I, we like the exit rooms, we like time stories. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, those are what I was thinking of. Yeah. yeah. And, unlock uh, and and that sort yep. of thing yeah yep yep all those but having it just be like this postcard is just like okay well that's cool <laughs> and it's just so that you said it's five postcards in a single envelope and is that all you get because that's, a- that's literally it there's okay. nothing there's there's like i said there's no instructions if you can imagine like someone you going to an escape room and then just like opening a door and you walk in and then they just slam it behind you that's kind of <laughs> you're luck. like good luck <laughs> bye yeah. Yeah. yeah hopefully we'll see you after at the end of this <laughs> if, if you're not out in 24 hours we'll open the door yeah <laughs> shove some food under anyway <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly no that sounds really fascinating i it's know good. 
it's an interesting space because I know my friends did one. I don't think it was one of the Cthulhu themed ones, but there's like mystery themed monthly puzzle type things where they'll you can sign up for this service and they'll send you things in the mail on a recurring basis and it's this sort of unfolding mystery yeah i know rita orlov has one called tale of ord that's like in four or five parts and you get Mm -hmm. each part monthly and so you kind of work through that month's box or envelope right Um, and that's another just completely fantastic one she has the most devious mind and uh, oh she's also fantastic to do an escape room with like absolutely i can imagine right i mean we did one in philly during uh pax u and our group was the second fastest ever at that place for anything for any escape room ever so yeah yeah that's pretty (laughs) i mean when you when you have someone who creates these types of things for a living (laughs) that makes quite a bit of sense (laughs) they know how the mind works right Mm -hmm. so actually i was going to ask also about uh, i know that you are part of a uh, charterstone game and we are planning on starting Tardestone this Wednesday. Oh, congratulations. I'm really enjoying it a lot, actually. Um, I'm playing with Kathleen over at Labyrinth. Yeah. And uh, yeah, with her son and uh, my daughter and my husband. And I wasn't sure how I was going to like it at first. I've only done one other legacy game before. Yeah. And while I enjoyed that one a lot, this one has a very, very, it was it was pandemic the first season. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, um, so yeah. this has a totally and entirely different feel to it so and since i i usually like my stuff really crunchy straight out of the box i kind of thought the warm-up on charterstone might be a little slow but yeah. uh the mystery element not knowing what you're going to unwrap not knowing what might be coming next and not knowing what kind of the point of everything is where the story is going i think yeah. makes up for there not being a ton of gameplay in the first couple of of sessions mm, so okay. so we're enjoying it that's awesome. So even with like the the like uh, lower amount of gameplay, is it still like a full game length, or are like the first few sessions like short sessions? I I think we found that because the first couple of sessions you're walking through the gameplay, right? You have to go through the rule book. You have to mm-hmm. kind of walk through these stages. There's a really good balance there. Of sure, the actual physical gameplay is going to be a little bit shorter. But the game, the time you take is going to be about the same because you're learning this game. So we found that there was a good balance there. And we've kind of gotten down to, you know, our sessions last exactly this time and have pretty much from the first session of the game. So, yeah, that was really interesting. And about how long do they last for a four player game? Uh, so there's, um, for, there's five of us playing five five players. Sorry. And I would say about maybe an hour. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. So not, not too bad. Yeah. 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 Especially one of the things that I've been interested in, because we've, we've actually played a number of legacy games, but none of them have had this sort of like worker placement mechanic. Right. Uh, And I was interested to see how those two mechanics will come together. Cause it seems, you know, with so many worker placement games, it's all about having full information. You know, it's knowing what's the most optimal, what's the most efficient play and legacy games by design, you don't have all that information at the beginning. So I'm really interested to see how those things work together. It's been, I, you know, on that, I think it is interesting because it breaks you of the habit of, you know, I need to know every single bit of information before I can even make my first play. Right. You know, once you've done this work through Charterstone for a couple of sessions, you're more likely to like set up a board and go, you know, let's just play through as we're reading the rule book and we'll figure it out as we go. Like 
you aren't nearly trying to do that kind of optimization, min-maxing sort of play. It's more about like the immersion and enjoying the gameplay instead. Right. Hopefully we have a, we have a couple of uh, analysis paralysis heavy people in our group. So hopefully we can, uh, we can get them to buy into that idea. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, this is going to be the second competitive legacy games, the game that we've tried. We, we also went, have been going through Z fall and well have finished going through Seafall at the moment. <laughs> yeah. Not finished the game, but finished going through it. Oh wow, really? Yeah. Um this is I think the first like legacy itself like game because we we've given up on Zombicide Black Plague in the past, but like this is the first legacy game that we're just like, yeah, we're not gonna finish this. Yeah. Wow. Which is a shame, but I mean it's I feel like competitive legacy games are a tough space to get into because so much about legacy games is coming back to the same table with the same people over and over again and trying not to carry over that bad blood from game to game. Whereas in a cooperative environment, you just avoid that entirely by saying, oh, we're all on a team. You have this like exigency of we have to work together. We have to work harder. And with a a competitive game, you lose a lot of that. So I'm interested to see if Charterstone can pull it off a little bit better than Seafall. Yeah, absolutely. What have we been playing? Yeah, I'm trying to like give given I mean, as good as we get. Seafall, Seafall, well, and Gloomhaven. Gloomhaven. Yeah. We've been playing some Gloomhaven. Oh, yeah. how have you enjoyed that? Oh, we that were we loving like. it. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I was a little bit lukewarm on it uh, to start off with because I just I don't think I was in love with any of the characters that you yeah. got at the very beginning. You really didn't like your characters. Yeah, like you know the first one that I tried, I immediately like the next uh, the next session, I was like, I don't want to play him anymore. So I, I started a brand new character. And then um, the second one that I tried, I liked him a little bit more. He was still fun, but like he wasn't really gelling with me that much. And then, yeah, (laughs) now I got a really awesome character that I absolutely love. So it's like it's a joy to bring to table as soon as that like happened. I know that William, one of our uh, our other friend who we play with, he really likes the uh, the brute, one of the basic classes. Every time he comes to the table, he's just like excited to play that. Mm-hmm. I know that you you like your rogue quite a bit as well. Yeah, I'm liking this scoundrel, and I think I mean I liked my Cragheart too. We were playing with sort of a variant permadeath. Oh wow! So I had a character previously who actually uh, died, and oh. I, I switched to a different class. But I think I I for my own sake, I really like the system. Like yeah. I like the hand management exhaustion. Like you have these abilities to blow up and be really, really powerful, but those cards get lost. And then, you know, it, it's almost like you have to balance your consistency versus your burst. And I really, really like that as like a balancing mechanic from getting too overpowered. But overall, I think we're really enjoying it. Oh, yeah, for sure. We just got back on track for some of the main plot. Yeah, we took a we took a side quest detour. For quite a while. Uh, for, yeah, for like four or five sessions. But. Yeah, that sounds great about it. You can be like, you know, no, we got to go find out what those guys in the trees were up to. So. Right, exactly. It's just true RPG style. You're like, main quest? Mm, no, I'm going to go get this treasure chest over here. That's- yeah. Oh, new ancient technology. I'm going to go that way. <laughs> exactly. Yep. exactly. <laughs> yeah, I think that one we're, we're still very excited about. And I think it helps that we're playing that every week. Yeah, yeah, for with, sure. <laughs> one of the problems that I think we ran into with Seafall was that we have so many different like campaign style legacy style games that we have them on a monthly rotation instead of a weekly rotation and so in between sessions we'd like forget the game state or we'd forget the rules and it, yeah. like, it just made for a, a less than stellar experience but with gloomhaven and getting to play that every week 
Mm -hmm. I think it keeps it fresh and it keeps it exciting. You don't spend the first 10 minutes of your session like relearning how to play the game. Exactly. Yep. And the, so the immersion's there immediately. So now I get it. Yeah, exactly. And it's a, it's a dungeon crawler too. So it's like you've, you've got like the enough story in there with like the scenarios and the uh, just everything that goes in with it, like, you know, going on the road events and then like, you know, doing a choice, whether you're doing character choice or a um, sane out of world choice can be it can be a lot of fun. There's there's a lot of cool stuff that happens there, mm -hmm. and I mean yeah, that's pretty much what we've been playing. It's it's the it's yep. the stream games. So yeah, well there you have it. That's a look at what we've been playing. Anna Maria Jackson Phelps, you are uh, as we alluded to in the introduction, aware of many hats. <laughs> um, I, I'm actually, I'm going to go ahead and just read off some of what you have going on. Uh, Editor-in-Chief of Girls Game Shelf, reviewer for Board Game Quest, uh, co-host of Our Turn Podcast, contributor to Be Bold Games and Casual Game Insider, social media manager for Pencil First Games. Uh, even besides all of that, you're a Kickstarter marketing consultant. I, so I guess my first question is, um, when do you sleep? <laughs> <laughs> I actually get in a lot of naps. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's part of my self-care routine, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's fun. Um, I I love the industry. I fell into this sort of by accident. And every time a new opportunity presents itself, I'm just super excited to get to participate, to get to help folks out, um, mm -hmm. to get to talk about games, to get to play games all the time. Yeah. Like, I mean, they say, you know, obviously, you know, do what you love. It's it's it can be tough. It can be a grind because you are doing it all the time. But I mean, you'll still enjoy it. And that's the best part. Right. How did you get into board gaming? You said you sort of fell into this. How long have you been playing board games? So I've been playing games forever uh, since the dawn of time. <laughs> <laughs> the writing thing, though, kind of came about a couple of years ago at AwesomeCon here at mm -hmm. DC. We were at a panel on women in media and different parts of pop culture. And someone from the audience had thrown out a game question and the panel wasn't able to answer. So they just called for answers from the audience and I answered. And then I answered their next game question. And then I just kept, I wound up being kind of the games person from the crowd. Nice. Uh, so at the end of the panel, um, that was Legendary Women. And they asked me to join and write on their blog for a while. Uh, from there, uh, that's how I got introduced to Kiki from Girls Game Shelf. I just out of the blue one day uh, wrote her a note and said, hey, I'd like to interview you. And then so now that's that's where I am is here yeah. at Girls Game Shelf. So it, it's but it's only been um, a year since I've been doing this as a regular full time serious thing. OK, that's I mean, for one year, I mean, what's this like half a dozen different uh, <laughs> different outlets, different projects. That's remarkably impressive. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Thanks. So we are also reviewers, but I'm really curious about the difference between, especially since you already, you also have a podcast or are a co-host of a podcast. Like, what are the, some of the differences that you see between podcast reviewing and writing written reviews and that kind of stuff? Or is it pretty much the same? I think there's, there's, there are differences between the different types of media, right? You know, Kiki does some video reviews. Um, I do some podcast talk. I primarily write my reviews and I do get to consume a little bit of everybody else's media, which is super fun. Mm -hmm. um, 
a audience, you know, who you're speaking to, the reasons why people tune in uh, seem to be different. Um, somebody who is looking at a video review may want a bigger breakdown, particularly of how things look, how things are done. Um, while someone who's looking for a written review is, is occasionally looking for something that is just as meaty, but um, usually shorter. As we look at our metrics, we see a lot of people like to uh, look at written reviews at work or during what would we <laughs> okay. consider working yeah, hours. Yeah. So, so blog metrics look really great during the day when people can't go watch a video mm. and then your video metrics go up in the evening and your podcast podcasts are great. Um, you can see people tune into those like rush hour times a lot, mm -hmm. um, or later in the evening. Um, and then video is like afternoon. I've gotten home from work, you know, watching this while I'm cooking or while I'm eating dinner or something. So, um, I think people both find reviewers that they like and enjoy and they feel like they have things in common with, mm -hmm. you know, cause that's obviously you want advice from somebody who kind of likes the games you already like, but also media that fits into their lives. So if someone say, if it's all video reviews, but somebody really only can do all of their media at a certain time during the day, that might not be a great fit for that person, yeah. you know, on the reverse, you know, if they prefer watching things, then they're never going to read anything somebody's written. So I don't know that necessarily the content specifically changes, but mm -hmm. certainly the audience and the length will change based on the type of media. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. No, that makes a lot of sense. You mentioned just there um, that your audiences, the people who are sort of, you know, reading your reviews or listening to the reviews, a lot of times they'll be looking for people who they have things in common with. And I know uh, several of your projects, including uh, Girls Game Shelf, the Our Turn podcast, uh, these are things that are explicitly centering women in gaming. You mentioned you got into the industry by being on a women in gaming or well, attending a panel of women in gaming. Have you found that there have been other people in a similar situation to you who have reached out to you and said, Hey, thank you so much for being this voice in the community. I think, you know, it's, it's not even about a platform being centric to women as seeing women here in the industry. You know, um, there are a lot of voices in our industry, but some don't always get the bandwidth that mm -hmm. others do. Yeah. And so I think there are a lot of people who are kind of looking for faces that look like them, you know, for people who are kind of speaking from the same experience that they have, that when they do find that are kind of grateful for it. If, if only maybe, maybe they don't even necessarily agree, but they appreciate that, you know, that I have a similar background to them and they can go, you know, I, I mm -hmm. thought I was the only one. That's something we hear a lot mm. is I thought I was the only, you know, I thought I was the only woman who enjoyed really meaty strategic games. You know, I yeah. thought I was the only one who had, you know, had this negative experience happen to me. And I thought that that was just an outlier, you know, and it's, it's good to be able to talk about these things. And so I do feel that, a certain amount of our audience is there specifically because they feel like they connect in that way. And then there is another part of our audience that is there because they just enjoy the things we say and that we're normalizing yeah. women in the space yeah. that it's yeah. not because it's women centric. It just happens to be women talking about the thing they like. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so a lot of what Kiki and I like to say, our mission, particularly with girls game shelf is, is creating diversity through just normalizing, seeing mm -hmm. certain people in the space that maybe, maybe a lot of people wouldn't normally see. 
Yeah, just changing sort of the, what the perception is of sure, sure. Space. You know, the idea that when you walk into, I mean, I've been going to game conventions for a while now, and I'll take Geekway, which is um, one of my favorites. Mm. But I've been going to that for about eight years now. And I would say the first year we went, you know, um, it was maybe. I mean, maybe there were 20% ladies there. There just weren't a ton. It was, I know that it stood out enough that anytime I saw another woman, I was like, hey, there you are, <laughs> you know? And now, I mean, it's it, it has to be close to a third, if not a half at this point. It is, there's nothing unusual. Nobody bats an eyelash. No, there are no double looks. You know, there are no mm -hmm. double, what? A woman in our space kind of thing. There's no one even pays attention to it because it's just, it's become normal. And that's, that's fantastic. That's where we want to see this community go. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. One of the other things that you mentioned pretty consistently in your bios, actually, is not just diversity, but also accessibility in gaming spaces, which is something um, that I don't know that I've heard a lot of people talk about. Uh, and I was just wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. So in particular, you know, talking when we when we go back to talking about bringing people to the table that maybe traditionally didn't have a space, you know, bringing more women to the table, bringing more people of color to the table, I think board games, tabletop games, for a while, not intentionally, but haven't thought beyond your usual person who had full accessibility to everything. Uh -huh. So we're, right. we're starting to see now publishers who are looking into colorblindness. Um, that's yeah. been a really big one for the last several years, right? right. You mm -hmm. started with um, things like Ticket to Ride, putting symbols mm -hmm. on their cards so that people could tell the difference between colors. You know, and we're moving into um, items that people can now use to modify games to make it easier for people who have hand-eye coordination issues to hold cards or to roll dice or people who are blind um, to have dice that they can touch mm -hmm. and know what's, you know, what, what pips are on top. So when we talk about that sort of accessibility in board games, we literally are talking about making it so that anyone can come to the table and enjoy the game, no matter what, you know, additional things they might need for that sort of accessibility, you know, and not only has it been neat to see the mods, but it's been neat to see games like, um, Catherine Staples' uh, Nyctophobia come out, yeah. which she designed like for her blind uncle, where you have to be mm. blindfolded in order to play the game. Sure. You know, so in addition to just making a really fun game, she started a conversation on, okay, so what do people who can't see, how do they play games? And that's yeah. important. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that's really interesting. Um, we have a friend of ours who is uh, colorblind, and I know that for a while, like we were really aware of that as well. I don't think we've really looked at that as much lately in our board game reviews. I don't think we have. Um, we should definitely go back to doing that. But yeah, I think it's, it's really important to like highlight things like usability for even just color blindness, but also like these other these other things. Talking about this, uh, I just started thinking about a game like Magic Maze, which is a game where you're not allowed to talk. So it's like where you're nictophobia, you're not you you have to be blindfolded. Magic Maze, you're not allowed to talk, and I mean. It's interesting because it's done as a game mechanic and specifically, but it could also be like, you know, one of those things that could cater to, you know, people who 
are mute in the gaming community and that kind of stuff. Well, you know, so you talk then about mm-hmm. different forms of communication, yeah. right? And how important communication is as a game mechanic, which is huge, mm-hmm. right? You know, I mean, unless you're playing a solo game, we call out games where you're playing a solo game sitting next to somebody as yeah. reviewers, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, yeah. there's yeah. no no anything. So when we talk about things like table talk and in air quotes, we're talking mm-hmm. about the the type of communication that one has during uh, board games. So something exactly like Ma- Magic Maze would would kind of highlight to someone who maybe didn't think about it yeah. that there are more than one way to communicate besides just verbally. Mm-hmm. You know, on the reverse, when we're talking about like, you know, hearing and, and speaking accessibility, we found unfortunately, um, so one of my kids is has hearing impairment and we went to play uh, Mountains of Madness and there mm. are multiple times during that game where either you have to shout over someone else, you have to cover your mouth Mm-hmm. or other things that aren't accessible for someone who might use a hearing aid yeah. or might be deaf who needs needs those things for communication so it you know it kind of highlighted that oh sometimes sometimes this accessibility is really not looked into or thought much about in design and it really needs to we need we need to do better about stuff like that yeah absolutely and just encouraging game companies and making them understand that these are things that need to be consciously ad- addressed during the game design process mm-hmm. because absolutely you know you all of the examples that we've brought up ticket to ride and things that are sort of changing the game design space for colorblindness for blindness they're not difficult you just have to think about them you know you just have to be aware that these are things that people who want to play your games may need absolutely and, and you know they deserve to have the chance to play those games as much as any of any of the rest of us so Absolutely. You know, and and my big stressor to both publishers and developers when they come to things like this is just ask, go on Twitter, ask questions. I promise you someone is going to say something or point you in the right direction. It's a big friendly community for starters. And there are a lot of people who are really looking out for things like this. So if you go, you know, even if there's someone not in your local community that you can find out from, there is someone online that you can you can get advice from. So definitely start with uh, someone like Meeple, like us, as a matter of fact, who does a lot of excel- accessibility teardowns. Mm. Um, and he will absolutely point you in the right direction. So there you go. Any publishers listening? <laughs> absolutely. There's, there's, your, there's your cue. <laughs> yeah. You also do work, uh, I know, with Kickstarter campaigns. How, you know, because Kickstarter is really this revolutionary thing in board gaming. How have you seen that affect uh, how games get marketed, how games get really made uh, and then distributed? So that's been a really interesting process to kind of walk through the first couple of times. Um, I have a marketing background, so marketing product, marketing events and and things are something I'd already done, but Kickstarter really kind of changes a lot of those things the completeness of your project would be the first thing I think of when I think of like when you're going to Kickstarter, you know, if you're going to market a product traditionally, you need to be done. (laughs) You can go to Kickstarter and, you know, we have about half of your stuff, stuff going. But I think the big thing that we see is knowing your audience. It's the, the most important thing really that you should think of as early as possible in your design process. And this doesn't, necessarily tie you know specifically and just entirely into kickstarter but everything but it's so big for marketing you need to know who you're making your game for and why they want it 
you know, and, and those, because those are the people that you're going to be speaking to. And those are the people who are going to be your backers. Yeah. Right. Um, but the Kickstarter process specifically is fantastic for indie developers mm-hmm. who previously, I compare it a lot to like eBooks for authors, right? Previously authors had to go yeah. and they had to get an agent and the agent went to these big publishing houses with indie game development. You know, previously these people had to go and create a sell sheet and go to cons and hopefully get an appointment with a big publisher mm-hmm. and hope they understood their five minute elevator pitch. If they even got five minutes, like, you know, and now between Kickstarter and social media, you can start to generate buzz for an idea that you have mm-hmm. while you're developing that idea, you know, and when you finally get to a stage where you feel like you've developed, you play tested, you're ready, you know, you've got this built in audience, you can throw it up there on Kickstarters, start to see what people's reaction is your comments, you know, who's looking, why, you know, that may even change a few of the ideas that you had. It's, it's fantastic. And I think it's been a big positive overall for the industry, because I think we've heard from a lot of people and we've seen a lot of games that we probably wouldn't have if they'd had to go through traditional methods. For sure. Uh, so actually this is a question that ties back into, I guess, both the Kickstarter and the um, accessibility and other like representation aspect. Have you seen that, like, you know, uh, Kickstarter having these, uh, this feedback loop and things like that has started to raise awareness of these kinds of issues in the board game industry, since it is crowdfunding. So there are a lot of people who will either comment or talk about like the kind of game, et cetera. Sure. I think as, uh, especially as people are like, um, getting into groups and they're starting to promote, you know, Hey, we're going to do this Kickstarter in two months. What do you guys think of my game? Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And people start to see what the campaign is going to look like. You start to hear a lot of voices very early and so much earlier than would have been in the design process before. Right. right. Yeah. You know, these people have the opportunity while a designer is still working on it to say, well, Hey, you know, your representation is not very good or, you know, your art objectifies people or, you know, did you have someone consult on this game who is of that culture? You know, and these were things that before Kickstarter and before social media, you know, a board game came to the store before anybody could make a comment on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and now it's beneficial both for the audience because they get to see these things early and make decisions about them. Mm-hmm. But it's it's enormously beneficial for the designer and publisher because they can kind of, you know, they get this this advice and this feedback early enough in the process to make changes that are necessary before they go to market and then the product fails because they didn't bother to look into the accessibility or something like that Mm -hmm. yeah i mean there's so many times where people you know again to talk about social media and sort of viral marketing maybe in a bad way viral attention uh there's so many times where people notice a thing, notice a product, notice an advertisement and say, if there had been even one person of color or one woman in the marketing team, this probably wouldn't have happened. And, you know, Kickstarter really just is a way to almost crowdsource that. At least, you know, at least early in the social media stages, right? You know, um, one would hope by the time they've got their Kickstarter campaign fully together, (laughs) they've actually started looking into that. (laughs) But there is still that opportunity sometimes to to hopefully, you know, educate someone who maybe hadn't thought about it, had kind of, you know, we we joke a lot about designers kind of being in in tinkering at their kitchen table and not paying attention to (laughs) outside stuff for for a long period of time, you know, and so when you do get out there, maybe, maybe it wasn't something that you necessarily thought about or you know, a background or a point of view that, that you didn't have, Mm -hmm. you know, but the social media, I mean, that comes right back down to the accessibility thing. Just ask, 
just go on Twitter, just go on Facebook, just ask, you know, yeah. gamers are very vocal and they're going to let you know. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> is, that is true. <laughs> so um, I think to wrap up, uh, I just wanted to ask about how your experience has been just in general over the last you know, a few years being a part of board games uh, and just uh, the media surrounding it and all that. How has your experience been like both from an audience perspective as well as from like, you know, other people who are part of the board game industry? What have been your feelings about it? And how's, how's that been for you? You know, I love this industry. I love the community and I think we get better and better every year. You know, I don't, I don't think that maybe we're, we're striding or, or leaping making these leaps forward. But I think there are a lot of baby steps. I can certainly look back over years of playing games and where the industry was in say the nineties or two thousands when I was purely just gaming, Yeah, you know, to now and go, wow, that's, it's totally and entirely different. But even over the past few years, you know, we're, we're starting to see different themes, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. Elizabeth Hargrave's uh, wingspan. Yep. If you'd said two years ago, like a game about birding would be like the, the hotness, <laughs> the hotness. Yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. You would have rolled eyes and said crazy, right? And now everybody is like, look how I got my little Cadbury eggs, right? Yeah. I mean, people are super stoked about that sort of thing because we're, you know, we're making this community bigger. And as we welcome more people in, there's these fresh ideas and there's these fresh needs and wants and designers are responding to that. And so we get better product and we get more interesting things and different things to appeal to different audiences. So I think largely uh, it's been really positive. I think um, the past couple of years we see better representation mm -hmm. insofar as our content creators, mm -hmm. which I think is fantastic. Um, there are more voices out there, more voices being heard and listened to. Um, and that that you know it's all it's all a circle right so if you you know have this representation for content creators then there's this audience and the audience informs the publisher that there's a need for something and then they publisher design games around those type of audiences and then you know it just continues to build until we're this little you know happy little stone like rolling down a hill yeah. into just everything positive so i think there's still work to be done i think that's true in almost every community but i think over the past couple of years we've gotten we've gotten a lot better and I think we're on a really great path. Yeah. For sure. Optimistic outlook. All right. <laughs> and now, uh, we have a few questions that we like to ask at the, uh, the tail end of every interview. So, uh, Greg, yours first. Mine first. All right. Uh, so what is your favorite donut? My favorite donut is actually plain cake or zeppoli, which is, um, just basically a sweet Italian dumpling that's fried. Yeah. Well, there we go. That, I don't know that we've ever had that answer before. No, definitely not. <laughs> and then uh, my question is normally, if you were stranded on a desert island, what board game would you bring? Seven Wonders. No question. Bam. Instant answer. I love it. <laughs> yep. Any day, any time, any place. It's always Seven Wonders. Well, so. well there you go. Yeah, that, that works for yeah. sure. Both both strong answers to conclude a strong interview. Anna Maria Jackson Phelps, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you everyone for joining us for this episode of Dragon's Demise, and thank you once again to Anna Maria for being here for a fantastic interview. Uh, we would very much love it uh, if you all, our listeners, would head over to her project, Girls Game Shelf. They are doing fantastic work over there, and we would 
love it if you would support them as well as us. So head on over there. And actually, I don't have the site in front of me, Anna Maria. www.girlsgameshelf.com. Bam. Simple as that. So head on over there. Check it out. Thank you, as always, to our patron supporters, Patreon supporters. I know how words work, uh, particularly our Greater Wearing patrons, uh, Meg, Hunter, Sam, Carissa, and Casey. We love you very much. We appreciate everything that you do for us. And don't forget to join us next week for a review of Get Me a Fresh Brain.